Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. Today, we have a very special guest on The Poker Grid, Canadian poker pro Dan Devores. He has over $15 million in live earnings and is one of the first person I got to agree to be on this crazy podcast. Since then, he's been busy winning everything, including back-to-back victories in the Bahamas, where he took down both the Super High Roller Bowl for over $4 million and then immediately followed up with a win in a 25K short deck event. But before he started playing high rollers, when he was mostly playing high stakes online, from heads up to cash to sit and goes, he became a really popular coach at Run It Once, where he creates a wide variety of training videos from detailed explorations of single hands to live hand reviews to deep dives into theoretical ideas. Dan, welcome to the show. So great to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. And tell us about this hand that you're bringing to us. I'm really excited um, to share it with the world. So this hand takes place earlier this year at Triton Jeju. I think it was in March or April. And it's a 1 million HKD buy-in short deck event. So I get to the table and it's a dream table. So I sit down, I immediately recognize two VIPs. There's two other guys that I haven't played with before and I don't recognize. So I'm in a great spot. I sit down and they immediately put in three of their lammers. So in short deck, usually you get three bullets and they just immediately put in all three of them, which is very rare. And so I do as well, because why not play 300 antis deep with these guys? And so we're playing 300 antis deep. I'm under the gun. I get Delta suited ace. I don't really have a decision. I flick in a call in short deck. Everyone antis up and the button posts two antis. So from first in with four people behind, you just don't, you don't really play any raises. So I limp in, everyone else limps, the button checks, and we see a flop. And the flop is just ace, ace, ace. So I immediately flop quads. I like to check. I could bet sometimes, I don't. And the first guy just goes all in for something like 30 or 40 times pot. So I'm sitting there and as this guy's all in, the guy behind him, says or mumbles something in Mandarin, I don't understand it, and also slides his stack in and goes all in. And then the guy to his left says something like, oh, okay, well, like, you're all in, I'm all in too. So there's three people all in for 900 total. And I'm just like, wow, what is going on? I flop quads and this happened. How is this real? And so I just double check my hand before I call it off with quads And I look down at ace five of clubs, which is not at all a legal short deck hand. And so immediately, um, I, my mind just starts racing. I, I, I go crazy because I'm thinking, how am I going to 
get out of this situation? Like, what do I do? First of all, I obviously would like to win the hand, but I can't do that with ace five. And then I'm thinking, well, I can't just muck and then, you know, let these guys play this pot when I also have an ace, but then this like random five. And then I'm also thinking, but if I just like flip my hand over, which is, which seems like the right thing to do, because this is like an illegal hand of short deck, uh, then someone that might have actually flopped quads and maybe the other guy has kings or something, one of the VIPs might get really mad at me for like ruining his chances at winning a 900 anti pot. And so as all of this is just boiling in my head, I just start ventilating, completely lose it. And I wake up in a cold sweat and realize that this is the morning of the short deck event in Jeju and the short deck event hasn't actually started. Uh, and this this dream is just it encapsulated kind of the one of the two really big anxieties I have about poker. What are they? So the two anxieties are you have cards switching on you, which is a really common recurring dream that I have and that a lot of my peers that I've talked to have as well, uh, where they get into some sort of spot and then cards switch on them. And I think that's just reflective of not being in control you know in poker there's just not that many things that you can control you can't control how your opponents play you can't control the runouts so it's really scary to not be able to control one of the things that you're supposed to have full control over and that's your whole cards the second one is just related to that and it's just not remembering your hand correctly uh, which is I think that's just a really common fear for everyone. And how do you deal with that in game? Do you check your cards often or are you someone who checks them just once at the beginning of the hand? So I actually have a very specific routine where as I'm getting dealt cards, I always look at one, but only one. And that way I can start thinking about what I want to be doing, things that I might do pre-flop depending on what my other card is. And that way I'm involved in actively thinking but I haven't looked at both of my cards, so if people are paying attention, I'm not giving off any reads to people to my right. And then when it's my turn, I look at both cards. And then once it goes to the flop, I look at both cards again. And then I never look unless I'm like double-checking before calling off. In this hand, what's so interesting about it is the level of detail that you remembered in a dream. Because you know, a lot of people have poker dreams, but this one, it's so detailed that you can actually start parsing out strategy. Like the chances that someone has quads in short deck obviously being higher because there are fewer junk hands in the deck, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there's just fewer combos. So, you know, if it flops ace, ace, ace in short deck, five-handed, probably someone has an ace. Right, exactly, especially when they start going all in. So you're, this is like just such a ridiculous hand history. I have a lot of other poker dreams too, but they generally are of the type where they're not as concrete and as detailed. And usually it's just something where I think I have a particular hand and then I do something and then when it's time to show down, I just have not that hand. And that's all, always uh, also a complete emotional disaster. Right. I mean, that's the classic, like, you know, show up for the exam without any clothes or the wrong exam like that. It, it's like the poker version of that, right? Yeah. I had the opposite of that once where I also in a poker dream, I was running some crazy bluff against Dyke Haxton and he was just staring at me for like two minutes on the river and I completely lost it. 
completely tell-boxed, and then he called, and I was so disappointed in myself because I was just like, wow, I, Dan, you just gave away what you had. You were obviously bluffing, and it just completely switched the other way, and I actually ended up having value somehow, and I felt so guilty. Yeah, that sounds like something you would feel. Like most people um, in that situation, even though you think it's such a bonanza because you win, it's like still embarrassing because <laughs> the methodology was so messed up to get you there. Right. But in terms of uh, these vivid dreams about poker, I wonder about this one also perhaps suggesting something more broad about your like lack of relative preparation in short deck as compared to obviously full deck poker, even though like strategically it should be a much simpler game because you have so much more experience in regular poker was there some anxiety overall about like not being strategically prepared i think there was maybe a little bit of that also it's a thing where clearly even if i wasn't super anxious about it i'm thinking about the tournament and you know as neurons in your brain are firing and trying to prepare you or make sense of things uh, going into the tournament things like this will come up but definitely I've played maybe 1% of the hands that I've played lifetime, maybe 1% have been short deck. Uh, So definitely the level of, I feel like I'm well prepared relative to the field when it comes to a short deck event, but I'm definitely not as well prepared as I would like relative to my own standards with myself. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So it's like you're well prepared, it might be, you might even have a bigger edge, but your understanding of the game is not there. And I know for somebody who's, who loves the game so much as yourself, that is a separate category that you can't necessarily quantify. Like once I've reached where I am in No Limit, like you get to realize how bad you are at other games. Because like in No Limit, I know a lot of things that other people don't know. And then so now when it comes to another game, I know that there exists this level of expertise for this game too. And I'm just not there yet. That's definitely a source of anxiety for sure. Did you end up playing well in that event? And how did it go? Uh, I ended up playing well in that event. I ended up cashing, but I I think I came fourth and ended up firing four bullets, I think, uh, which isn't that crazy for a short deck event. Uh, But I've been happy with, uh, with how I played short deck in 2019. And how did the million dollar um, entry fee equate to dollars? So it's about 230 US. All right. So still like a really huge buy-in. Yeah. Going back to Ace-5 suited as a hand, I I think that that one really holds a special place in many of our hearts because before people started mixing as much as they do now with solvers, a lot of people would use like Ace-5 suited specifically as like a bluff hand, right? in their super strong four bet range or something like that, or five bet range. And how have your feelings towards ace five suited really changed since you've been working so much with solvers? So it's actually, it is a preferred hand when it comes to spots that involve very tight ranges. It's just a really good hand when you're up against top two or three or three and a half or whatever percent. So it is actually very much like a preferred five-bet bluff-shove hand in a lot of spots where you're only getting called off with aces-kings, ace-king. It it also has some other aspects, like it unblocks a lot of other bluffs. So it's interesting that intuitively people kind of arrived at the conclusion that this is a sweet bluff hand, and then years later we have solvers, and the solvers approve. 
are the solvers like somehow more mixing in some of the other wheel aces or are they just really prefer ace five suited? It depends. Usually solvers use more mixing, but in spots where you have maybe two or three bluff combos in total, you just use kind of the best ones. If you're talking about having a wider bluffing range, then it, then it makes sense to to mix in ace four suited, maybe some other suited aces, maybe like a king jack suited type of hand. But in a spot where your bluffing range is actually really, really narrow, then ace five suited is actually the magic one. It still holds that magic. Ace five suited, why is it so much better than ace deuce suited, ace three suited, ace four suited? Is it because the five is more likely to make different types of straights? Yeah, the, the five can make more straights. That's um, That's kind of it. The straights that don't involve the ace, basically. Yeah, and it can make, uh, I guess it can make more nut straights as well. That's why there's like that big bridge between it and the other the other suited wheels that you only start mixing them when you're deeper and it actually matters like about hitting trip fives or you know, right. occasionally being able to hit trip threes, right? Yeah. That's a really good takeaway as I find this this magic hand in the dream so fascinating. In your dream hands, is there some kind of pattern that you can assess besides the fact that it often results in you um, having a different hand than you really had? It's hard to say. They're, they're, so, they're so all over the place, and dreams are just this melting pot of your technical knowledge, your anxieties, your emotional states. Uh, so it, it's really hard to say. Yeah. You know, when we prepared to do this interview, you recommended a, a great book for me um, called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. And he describes dreams in a really nice way as a neurochemical bath that mollifies painful memories and a virtual reality space in which the brain melds past and present knowledge, inspiring creativity. I really love that. I mean, it certainly makes me want to go to sleep. Yeah, and highly recommended book for everyone. You know, there, there's a, a really important distinction between kind of the, I guess, like the Freudian understanding of dreams and more, a more recent, like rigorous scientific understanding of dreams. But it is interesting how there are kind of some intersections. Do you um, sleep well? And have you consciously remembered your dreams? Like, are you consciously like journaling them as soon as you wake up? Or are you just particularly adept at remembering your dreams? I had a phase where I was semi-obsessed with lucid dreaming. And I had a phase when I was journaling my dreams. I don't anymore. And then as far as sleep goes, I do try to sleep as much as I can. I genuinely do believe it's very, very important. I just haven't really had the opportunity to do that in the past three or four months just because of how busy I've been. Uh, but other than that, I do set it as a goal to try to get enough sleep because I really do think it's important. Let's get back to that because you've been so busy, partly because you're obviously busy on the live circuit, but you're also playing these online 25Ks that kind of run continuously even weird hours of the night, right? Yeah, they tend to start around four in the morning my time, and sometimes it's a 12 to 16 hour day. Uh, so if, if you want to put in a lot of volume, then you have to sacrifice sleep. Yeah, I know that with sacrificing sleep, I'm also sacrificing a lot of other things, uh, like obviously health, but also in, that includes kind of getting better at poker. You don't sleep well, you just don't have your brain physiologically doesn't have the resources to reconcile all the things you've learned, all of uh, all of the hands that you've played. So not only is it unhealthy to not sleep, but you're also just going to get worse from a technical point of view uh, when it comes to poker. 
is that uh, that that great quote about mollifying painful memories. Like if you're not sleeping and you have this like buildup of negative memories in poker, you might start like overcorrecting or doing weird things. Is that what you mean? Because you haven't actually processed them psychologically. It doesn't even have to be bad memories. It just it can just be really routine learning. Uh, like after a session, if you look hands up, you weren't sure about maybe some ICM spots or some other post flop spots, and you just won't remember what you did as well if you don't get good sleep. To me, it's funny that um, because I think as we were scheduling this interview and you came up with the idea for this hand history, it was in the midst of these crazy 25Ks. So to me, it feels like the you have like this uh, potential obsession with sleep because you really want it. You're missing it. <laughs> yeah, that, that too. Um, I am definitely missing it. It slowed down a little bit and I'm genuinely happy. And also I think after three months, I'm just kind of physically feeling uh, the effects. So I think like my goal for the beginning of 2020 is to take it a little easier. Why have you decided that? Like, because it's always been the same, same, same thing, right? That you're kind of sacrificing quality for life for EV. So what changes in 2020? Well, at at a certain point, the pot boils over, so to speak. So you can really push yourself for one month, two months, three months. But after that, it's just, it, it becomes progressively harder because there's this kind of physiological debt, so to speak, uh, that you have to pay for taxing your body and your mind for so long. Well, tell us a little bit about these 25Ks. Like, is it completely different than other types of 25Ks you've played in your life? They're actually very similar to a typical high roller that you would see in the live scene. They tend to get 35, 40, uh, sometimes 50 entries. The payouts tend to be the same. They're kind of turbo-y. If you've played or followed a single day 25 or 50K on the EPT or a 25K that takes place at ARIA, it will be very, very similar to that. Okay, so you're studying from these, but it's not like a format that you haven't like studied before. Right, um, and if anything, I think that they've prepared me better for playing live tournaments. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that, because you know, you've started playing live more in like the last five years, but particularly with the high rollers in the last few years, right? And what's that been like? And is there anything that you really had to do a lot differently to prepare yourself for those super high buy-ins? I, I think they're just different in that there's more attention to detail, there's more precision, uh, and less room for errors, not just because you're up against better competition, but also... Because particularly for the higher buying events, people tend to sell action and there's you're almost kind of like on a short leash. So there's definitely the bar is a lot higher for how well you have to consistently execute. There's more of that compared to playing online. You're trying to play well, obviously, but you're also trying to maximize volume. Here, I would say you're trying to maximize precision. Now, when you say short leash, it means that like if you make a terrible play, some of the people who are backing you or, you know, agents of these people who are backing you actually see the hand and like might consider not backing you in the future or like reducing the markup or something like that. Is that like the issue underlying? Potentially, right? Um, I think for people that have been established in the high roller scene for for a long time, that's a little bit less of a problem. But it's still it's still something to consider. And For people less established in the scene, I would say that's even more so important. And I know for myself, when I first started getting into the high roller scene, 
that was always in the back of my mind. It wasn't overwhelming because my goal was always to play like me and to play well to the best of my own abilities. But there's also this thing in, in the back of your mind that, yeah, some of this money isn't yours and you don't want to mess up. How do you avoid not playing, not you, but just in general, how would one avoid not playing too risk averse in that case? Because there's so many situations where like, you could bluff, but like by virtue of bluffing out of position, for instance, you might be bloating the plot and the chances of you making the um, making further mistakes um, along the hand are higher at that point. And it's not like it would be an error not to bluff. So it seems like that would potentially create some risk averse play. Is that the case? And how do people get around that concern? The way to get around that is to, first of all, have a mutually trusting relationship with your backer if you're selling action. Um, and also to think of what the equilibrium is, not even the in-game equilibrium, but kind of in the grand scheme of things, if everyone is doing that, then clearly the equilibrium shifts to you being incentivized to bluff everywhere and bloat the pot, right? Uh, so it's two things of like, one, you try to put things in perspective and remember that you're still playing poker and trying to max exploit your opponents. And two, having a mutual trust with yourself and your own abilities and also your backer if you're selling action. Yeah, and that kind of thing is probably why it's, you know, so difficult for people to break into that scene because it requires um, so many different cognitive skills, right? Like the ability to understand poker theory really well and still bluff under this tremendous amount of pressure, which sounds like it's not as much financial as it is in, you know, allegiance to the theory of the game. Right, exactly. And that obviously it's a, it's a lot of pressure when you're playing long days as well, right? And shot clocks as well. Yeah, long days, shot clocks. Um, also, everyone tends to be watching. Even if you're not on stream, a lot of people tend to be watching. And if you're on stream, then literally everyone's watching. So there's definitely some added pressure. What do you think would have surprised people most about the super high roller scenes? What would surprise people the most? I think people underestimate how how unique and exploitative a lot of the regulars are. I think one of the big one of the biggest misconceptions is that everyone plays like a ro- uh, like a robot and being really good and well versed in poker theory is not at all the same thing as playing robotically. Yeah, I think that's one of the more surprising things at least at least for me is how unique uh, everyone still is and you know not everyone's playing computer poker. And even the people that are capable of playing computer poker often are not. Right, because people are are human and these um, strategies are so complex, right? Yeah, and also the field tends to be very varied. And also, if you think about what the fields are in these high rollers, the fields tend to be pretty polarized, where there's really good players and then recreational players. And so that creates very unique and interesting spots that you have to adapt to very quickly. Because then your your ranges that you've been using to study theoretical poker are, are not really relevant. Yeah. And especially if you get into three-way pots and adjust for potential aggression or lack thereof players who are maybe on the more recreational side, the equilibriums really, really start to shift. Do you spend uh, the majority of your study time working with solvers um, in a a more GTO style, like looking for game theory ranges, or are you often, you know, looking more for the exploitative ranges that you might play in some of these super high rollers, as you described? I do both. I think that in terms of 
time. It's about two-thirds more theoretical study, one-third just kind of trying to find exploits, watching streams, taking notes of hands. But despite the time being split, maybe two-thirds, one-third, the intensity of the theoretical study I find to be a lot higher. So when you're watching a stream or even if you're taking notes on people or thinking of exploits, that tends to be kind of low intensity, passive. But if you are doing more theoretical stuff, uh, for me, that's a lot more, you know, it's just like studying math or something. It's just you're really in there. It's really taxing on the brain. You can't do it passively. Uh, So despite that being kind of the time split, definitely more brain resources allocated to the theory side of things. Why does it take so many brain resources? Is it because you've already like run the solves and then you're just kind of trying to internalize and group the results? Because if you're just like running a solve on a hand, it kind of takes a long time and that doesn't feel like it is congruous with intensity. Um, so, so solves can take a long time, but if you do them efficiently, like you can have several running at the same time, then look at them. But internalizing the solutions that you see is, I, th- I think, what the most intense part of it is. There's a difference between just seeing an output and going, oh, okay, like, this is what I do on the river. These are the hands that I, that I bluff with. And really trying to understand why things are the way they are and like, why you use certain combos and not others and why the mix is the way it is. Uh, in- internalizing something is very different than just looking at the solution. So it's the internalizing that is taking all these big resources. Yeah. It brings one question that we had from the crowd from uh, Femi Fashikan, who actually won the uh, Big 50 this year at the World Series of Poker, the biggest poker tournament, I think, in history. So a live one. It's got like 20 something thousand people or something like that. Yeah, exactly. You're not likely to do that, Dan. I am very unlikely to do that. So anyway, he asked, are you human? When I saw this question... (laughs) What came to my mind was he was asking, like, are you human? How are you able to internalize and retain like these kind of like cyborg solutions so quickly? So there's two things. I think when you see a lot of solutions, they something kind of clicks and it makes sense in the more kind of grander scheme of things. Um, I I think there's that's kind of, I, I guess, the macro aspect of it. And then there's the micro aspect of it where when I see a solution and then there's some detail to it, uh, for example, the preference of using specific suits but not others, even in like non-intuitive spots, I really try to find the reason behind it instead of just accepting it as, what, as the answer that the computer spits out. Uh, so I think it's kind of the combination of those two things. I think once you put enough time into it, the, a very theoretical approach to poker is actually a lot more intuitive than it seems to someone that's not well-versed in theory. So once you have more reference points, it becomes easier to remember because you stick things in different areas of your brain. Yes. You must be particularly good at that because it's not that your memory is good, it's you're good at memorizing things. So my memory is actually relative to a lot of my peers. I actually, and they tell me this as well, my memory for just remembering things or hands that took place uh, or even specific preflop charts is really bad uh it's like like i think it's good compared to maybe the average person especially when it comes to poker because again like you said i have more reference points but my memory for remembering specific things is is not that great 
but I think I'm very good at conceptualizing things for myself. And that makes my memory seem good, but I'm actually, rather than remembering something specific, I'm just kind of referring to a concept that makes sense to me in my head and applying it to this particular spot. That makes sense, though. I mean, that, that's actually maybe a defense mechanism because you don't have a great memory. You're creating this like more monomics, which might end up like being this like tortoise versus a hare thing that gets you further in the end anyway. Right. I mean, I feel the same way. So I, I try to create like more monomics and patterns both in chess and poker. And I think that it can end up being useful for sure. I did want to ask you before I get to other user questions. You made one video series back in 2016 that I really liked. It was about perceiving poker as a puzzle versus perceiving poker as a mystery. And this was a spinoff of a distinction made by Malcolm Gladwell in one of his books. This was only a few years ago. So you use CREV and Pile in the series, but obviously you've done a lot more work with Solver since you made that series. Um, do you still feel like this is a, a valid distinction between creating a puzzle out of a poker hand, which means that you have all the information and you just need to decode the answer, versus a mystery in which um, you're trying to create something which is more um, judgment and intuition based? Yeah, I think that that's definitely still valid. And I, I think that's especially valid against um, as you play more people that are perhaps very good at memorizing things and, you know, knowing how to respond to particular bet sizes on particular flop textures, for example. Like, well, what if you bet a size that you're not supposed to bet in a particular spot? If they can't adjust to it because all they've done is memorize responses to things that are supposed to happen, then you might you're, you might put yourself into a very advantageous spot. Uh, so I think I think that that's still very, very applicable. Yeah, that's something that uh, I've heard Dom talk about a lot as well. Um, what do you think people usually do wrong when they study with solvers? Like, what's the number one thing that people who aren't super experienced in using solvers mess up? The number one thing that people mess up is they get lazy with putting in proper bet sizes and proper solver options for streets that they're not interested in. Like, that's the most common mistake. So someone will say want to look at how they're supposed to play a particular flop and they'll just put kind of whatever for turn and river nodes and if you do that then you know the solver because it's constrained in terms of the lines that it can take in the future after the node that you're interested in that node gets affected too uh, so i think in terms of setup with a solver that's the most common mistake i see so yeah, to, to come up with an example, like for instance, suppose I didn't put a turn lead in, then the solver might have me check raising even more aggressively than I, the flop than if I had, right? Right. Yeah. So, so even these little things that you wouldn't think matter. The opposite of that is true as well, is if you put in like a poor flop check raise size, you might see some nonsense like check call flop and then lead a turn that you're like intuitively, you understand you're not supposed to lead, but the solver does. And that's because you put something in wrong on the flop. A bad check raise size. Would you, you think people probably make check raise sizes that are too small? Is that a common mistake or too big? It depends. Uh, like that's why even working with solvers, it's it's difficult. It over time you develop an intuition and an understanding of what sort of size is appropriate with what stack depth and on what sort of textures. But until you know that. Um, really, the best thing to do is to test a lot of sizes 
Unfortunately, that will mean that your sim takes a while to run. Uh, but after you test some sizes, you can reduce the sizes that are used and uh, pick the one that it likes. So do, would you say that if somebody's kind of new to using solvers, it would be better for them to like kind of focus on like if they have a couple afternoons to study poker and solvers, it would be better for them to focus on like fewer flops and just spend more time on the same flop, just exploring different avenues and possibilities. I would actually say if someone is new to solvers, a really good thing to do would be to run a script overnight where they run several flops with a lot of different options that are allowed. Uh, so several check raise sizes, several CBAT sizes, and run that overnight and look at the results in the morning and really try to understand why different sizes are preferred on the different flops and on the different runouts. That's the best way to develop an actual intuitive understanding of what the solver is trying to do. That'll also get you more efficient in using solvers in the future. Sleep on it, as you say. Yeah, let, let the solver sleep on it and sleep, sleep on it yourself. And when you try to understand and internalize these things, do you use um, writing? Like, how do, you, um, how do you do it? Do you have some kind of special technique that works best for you? I actually just try to make sure that I can explain it to myself in very simple words. So you don't actually write it down? I don't actually write it down. I'll, or another good technique is be able to explain it to someone that maybe not doesn't play poker, but like that's not very good at poker. I, I feel like if you, can, if you can look at a spot and explain why certain things happen to someone that's not good, or to yourself in very simple words, then that means that you fully understood it and you won't forget it. I love it. I really like that. That's a great, that's a great way to look at it. I did something different today because I know a lot of people are interested in um, picking your brain. So I took a couple questions from the crowd. The first one is from Katie Stone and Vlad Alexandrov. And they ask, when it comes to studying, what aspect of the game do people overlook or ignore the most? I think it really depends on the context of what you're studying. Like if you're studying for particular tournaments or for cash games and the level of the opponents that you're going to be playing. Uh, but for me, it's always been sizing. Like that's just kind of been my blanket answer for what people don't spend enough time on and what people don't understand enough. And that's sizing. You're allowed to bet obviously any size and no limit and most people have one or at most two sizes that they ever bet and they don't adjust from that. And I think that's naturally, therefore, the most overlooked aspect. Right, totally. And I remember um, you once mentioned to me something about a just it was an interesting situation because it was one in which you were recommending that I consider leading a flop where a lot of people would only consider check flop check uh, calling or check raising. And I said, you know, but is it really worth it because it doesn't add that much equity? And you said something very interesting that it wouldn't take me much time to get further in that thought process. Like I only had to think about it for 10 minutes. So what was this like huge cost? And I think that's interesting that with all this data out there, people thinking for themselves is something that could be lost as they, you know, desperately try to retain more data and just like hunt it. Um, and it sounds like you get away from that by talking to yourself. So I think a lot of people are also afraid of making a mistake. Like a thing I hear very often is, 
oh, I'll just play this simple strategy where I'll only bet 30% here and bet that with all of my betting range because then I know, like, I know that's okay and I know I won't make a mistake. Well, it's like a mistake relative to what? Relative to a computer or relative to your opponent? Because if you do something that's a mistake versus the computer, but that your opponent is likely to make a bigger mistake versus, then that's no longer really a mistake, right? Right. I see what you're saying. I mean, I, I think what you're what you're getting to is also this concept of loss aversion, where people don't want to make a mistake compared to the optimal solution, whereas making an even bigger mistake uh, exploitatively is not as concerning to them. And that could mean losing, leaving a lot of money on the table. Right. And... Interesting. And then we got a question from um, one Max Silver who asked, how would you fare in a battle royale style fight to the death versus other super high roller <laughs> regs if you were all armed with a bow and arrow? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I I saw that one on Twitter and I already told him that I'm pretty sure I would destroy everyone except Jason Kuhn. So I've actually been shooting a bow for the last 10, maybe, maybe actually 15. No, not quite 15, uh, but for sure over 10 years, uh, pretty consistently. Not as consistently this past year just to, just because of how, how busy I've been. Uh, but I grew up hunting. I've gone bow hunting semi-consistently over the last few years. Uh, so if, I'm, if I got a bow and arrow, I think, I'm, I think I'd do pretty well. What about Jaykun? Why aren't you beating him too? I think he's got some bow shooting experience and he's just a beast of a human being. Uh, so, like, even if he's got a stick, I think I might have some difficulty. Isn't there an Olympic sport that involves both shooting and skiing? There's rifle shooting and skiing, so that's biathlon. Really interesting sport, actually, because it's cross-country skiing, so you have to be fast on skis. And when you do that, your heart rate obviously gets really, really high. Uh, but then when you get to your shooting station, you have to go pro, and then you have to slow down your heart rate as fast as you can, because if your heart's going crazy, it's very hard to hit a target accurately that's very far away. Exactly. That's why I was thinking that people like, you know, that's really interesting because it's that perfect combination of like the physical and mental strength, right? Yeah. And the control of your heart rate. Wow. That sounds like something that poker players would be pretty good at, actually. And Max Silver, of course, is the creator of Snapshove. Um, Timothy Adams asks, do you have any nicknames and... Um, how would you describe your sense of humor? <laughs> um, nickname. I, I have a lot of nicknames. Um, so a lot of my friends call me Ox. I think the one that Tim's trying to fish out is Mr. Tozy. The the details of how Mr. Tozy came to be shall remain a secret. Uh, as for my sense of humor, yeah, my sense of humor is just very wide range. I think all over the place. I, especially on poker trips, I tend to find very stupid things very funny i think that's just a i think that's just a function of after playing several back-to-back 12-hour days of poker it's just you're so close to being delirious that silly things are just really funny i totally agree that's why there's all these like cliched poker jokes like the one about when you chop it up like you play that garbage and people like to make fun of it but to me it kind of shows something broader about the game that the game is so serious that people are kind of desperate for something to cut the tension. So even like the bar for a joke at a poker tournament is like really low. Like you don't have to be that funny and people will laugh. Yeah. And the bar for like when you're done playing and you're just trying to decompress for an hour after 
after a long day is even lower. So especially when you're among friends. And of course, Timothy is a good friend of yours posing as a super fan. Maybe he's well. And by the way, everybody who asked a question has to be on the poker grid. Ooh, I'd, I'd be curious to listen to his for sure. Yeah, no, I, I just added that in in the last minute because I got so many, um, so, so many great players, um, you know, who had these big questions for you. And another one, which actually circles back to our question of sleep, was um, Sam Grafton at Squid Poker who asked, on poker trips, how much time do you spend in your room and do you have any special activities that take place there? <laughs> so I think he's referring to a couple of things there. Uh, this last poker trip in Prague, I think I left the hotel literally twice for a cumulative total of about two hours. Uh, it was just a combination of being really busy with live poker, obviously, and then these 25Ks running online. So I was kind of chained to my room. As for what goes on in my poker room, or my hotel room, rather, after a long day of poker, yeah, to decompress, I like to play all these like silly games. Like One of my favorites is laying back on the bed and trying to hit a piece of... Uh, lint roller that's glued to this that's stuck to the ceiling without hitting the ceiling it's just this like mindless thing that you play with a roommate to try to just get your mind off poker and kind of slow the gears down in your brain and hopefully get some good sleep after the day's over wait so it's a you're you're throwing a lint roller um on the ceiling no 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 you you uh you peel off a piece of lint roller and you stick it to the ceiling then you lay on your back on your bed and you throw a small ball to try to hit the lint roller piece, uh, but without hitting the ceiling. And you kind of throw it back and forth with a friend. Wow. Sounds like a really like a game that's like directly in opposition to the, you know, overuse of cell phones where there's like all these like great complicated games that you can play, but you're, you, you want something that's like almost as deliberately as boring as possible. Well, that's the whole point. And in a way, it's kind of meditative. And again, when you're when your brain's just been going at 100 miles an hour for the whole day, it's I think it's exactly what you need. And is this a game that you played with Sam himself? This is a game that I've played with some roommates, but not Sam. But Sam can play if he wants. He, he, he has an open invite. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. Wait, do you gamble in this game? Oh, no, th- this is just purely. F- well, we do gamble, but just for gold medals that don't mean anything. One last question. Uh, what do you love so much about poker? Well, obviously, the complexity of the game. I also really like how it relates to real life. And I think that one of the things that I've really liked is how much poker has expanded my understanding of the role of chance and variance in real life. I think it's really helped me internalize that. And I think that I would not have as deep of an understanding for the role of chance in day-to-day life if I didn't have such an intricate understanding of how it applies to poker. Can you give me an example? Uh, Sure. I I think that like, if you look at real life, people tend to have a very deterministic approach. Uh, So if someone is successful or someone has a high up position at a company, people tend to think, well, it's because they did X, Y, Z, and, you know, it was... People think of things like that as being deterministic. But when when you think about kind of like the minute things that had to have happened and kind of the run that someone had to be on um, as, you know, as they would have to be in poker to perhaps win a poker tournament, 
uh, then it kind of really puts that into perspective. Right. A poker tournament. But for somebody like you who's succeeded um, for so many years and also at these like smaller super high rollers where it's less about winning and more about being anointed as a positive investment, one might argue that even in the multiverse, you are succeeding in most of them. I mean, what percentile do you feel like you are in this like theoretical multiverse? Yeah, it's hard to say like what percentile I would be. uh, But also, well, I wouldn't say like I'm a unique example, because there's tons of other guys that are in that are very similar to me and like in the way that you described. Uh, But I was more referring to, you know, if someone like wins one poker tournament, one big poker tournament, that is often more similar to someone being like the CEO of a company. I think that the variance involved is, well, I I don't want to overstate things, but I guess what I'm trying to say is often in life, you see people in high up positions that are of like questionable competence and like that relates to winning one poker tournament. And, And I think like a better example of real life relating to poker would be sports. If you think about the teams competing for the Stanley Cup in hockey or the NBA championship, or whatever else, usually after one of the teams wins whatever it is, uh, you see all the newspapers, like print articles of like, oh, of course this was going to happen, they're the best at X, Y, Z. But really that outcome was just probabilistic. And I think that people don't really internalize that uh, when it comes to any sporting event. But in in poker they do, and I think that hopefully that kind of, that kind of thinking, probabilistic thinking trickles down to other aspects of life. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I recently actually read, even though it came out, I think like, you know, over 10 years ago, but I read a Talib's book on Fooled by Randomness. I thought because I play poker, like I would probably know a lot of stuff in the book, but I was really wrong. It was actually incredibly detailed and I liked it a lot. Great book. Yeah. I feel like when you were talking, I was thinking, because you were thinking of it more the other way, that not that poker players are often lucky and their fate is determined by chance, but also that we should see that more in leaders of industries that we don't know much about. Right. Well, thank you so much. And um, it's been great to have you on the show. Uh, I know it's been a really busy year for you and hopefully 2020 is a tiny bit more relaxed. Um, But till then, we'll be following you at ddevoris. That's on Twitter and Instagram. You don't post that often, but when you do, it's, it's usually worth a look. Thanks a lot for having me on. Had a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks. That's Dan DeVoris on Ace 5 Suited. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings. They really do help. We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the mind sports arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.